Earlier this summer, we sent out a survey to all the people who attend Grace Church and asked you to share with us your biggest questions about life, faith, God, the Bible, eternity, heaven, hell, whatever. We left it completely open-ended so you could ask anything you wanted, and you did. We got over 350 different questions submitted that cover, oh my gosh, everything from like, did like did man evolved? Was the Bible have to say? Does the Bible exclude evolution all the way to do aliens exist? And if they do, what does that mean uh, for for Christianity? Uh, man, we got a ton of different questions, and obviously we're not going to be able to go over all three hundred and fifty different questions. Most of them fall under different categories, and there was one question that was asked above all else, and that's the one that we're starting with today. But I need to give a parent disclaimer. The subject that we're talking about is very grown up, and you may not want your young children in this service. And if that's the case, we have great kids' ministry classes uh, that you can put them in. Uh, real quick, uh, before we get into the teaching, I also need to give a message disclaimer. Um, much of the message today has been heavily influenced by a pastor friend of mine named Josh Howerton, who pastors uh, the Lake Point Church in uh, Rockwall, Texas. And he shares that, and by the way, I've talked with him about this, and I said, dude, like, this is great content. Uh, can I use a lot of this? And he and I have been friends for years. He shares that his content is heavily influenced from another Christian and uh, pastor and mutual friend named Eric Geiger. Here's the thing. The body of Christ uh, has not dealt with some of the specific issues that we're facing in today's world, and biblical Christians are learning from each other how to faithfully apply the scriptures, which do not change, to a culture that always does. So we're learning from each other how to be faithful to the Word of God and be loving and compassionate in an ever more complex and honestly broken world. So if this is your first time being a part of a Grace Church service, you probably are getting nervous, like, because I still haven't said what we're talking about, right? Like, you're like, what in the world are we going to be talking about? And truthfully, um, I, d I didn't know we'd be talking about this ever in my life as a pastor ever, um, because we're talking about what does the Bible have to say? Your question was, what does the Bible have to say about gender and sexual identity? That's a, that's a really good question. Uh, a question I wasn't prepared for in Bible college. Like when I went to Bible college, man, they, it was long enough ago that this wasn't on anybody's radar. But God has some very helpful instruction for us, regardless of the times that we live in. Um, and so I'm hopeful that today's teaching is going to be a blessing uh, to you as well. Here are a few questions that I'd like us to address. Um, what I'll read a few specific questions that you guys had asked. One was, I love my gay friend. How do I love them and believe that the way they are living is wrong? 
another question. Can can you be Christian and gay or transgender or non-binary? What do we do with family members or kids who identify as a gender that doesn't match their sex? Another question, how is being LGBTQ wrong if God created us and we are born this way? How should we talk to kids about sexual confusion and gender identity? And what sexual things are okay or not okay? But that, actually that one, we're gonna go into more detail next week. And these questions, the answer to these questions specifically, affect every single one of us at some level. Some of us more personally than others. Uh, the subject is a source of confusion for some, and that's all it is, but for others, it's a source of deep um, hurt and pain for others. For the Christians who are part of this service, we genuinely love our gay, queer, non-binary friends and loved ones, but also want to be faithful to God, who we know to be our loving creator. We want to be faithful to his word, the Bible. But how do we do both? We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3. It's going to be the first passage of scripture that we look at. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you don't, maybe you have the Bible app, or maybe you got a piece of paper and you can write it down and look it up later. But 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says this. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if somebody asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. The first thing all of us have to acknowledge is this, that each one of us have to decide what will be the defining authority in our life. That's the first thing that you need to wrestle with. Because truthfully, it doesn't matter what the Bible says if you are unwilling to allow the Bible to have influence in your life, right? But for those of us who are Christians, these are the people that we asked to share their questions with, we have to decide whether or not we will be more loyal to the Word or to the world because they are often not in sync. And if we're gonna be completely honest, we're around the world much more often than we are the Word. So because of our proximity and access uh, to this, it can have a larger influence on us than this. Until we get to moments like this, where we're actually looking at what this has to say about something this is very passionate about. So he says, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. So for those of us who are Christians, we've made a conscious choice that I'm going to allow God and his word to be the defining authority in every area of my life. The verse goes on to say, so that I can share with others the hope that I have in God. And he adds, but do that in a gentle and respectful way. And for those of you who have a sexual ethic that does not align with what the Bible has to say, and have been treated poorly by people of faith, I'm sorry, because the scripture says, uh, 
that whatever is explained out of Scripture needs to be done gently and with respect. So that's all. And I, I hope that that's the tone in which this is received also with kindness, compassion, with gentleness, uh, and, and, and respect. Um, Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verse 12 says this. Uh, the reason why is because we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. If, if you don't believe in the Bible, you're not my enemy. If you don't believe in God, you're not my enemy. Like, I, I don't, I don't hate you. Like, I, like, you and I are, we're both broken people in need of the exact same thing to be rescued and redeemed by God from our sin, our brokenness, the rebellion that's in our heart. Like, all of us have this. We're just broken in different ways. We, I have one flavor of sin and, you may have a different flavor of sin, but both of us have sin and we'll stand before God and give an account. But both of us are only going to be made right with God the exact same way, by faith in Jesus. Because if God is judge of all mankind and God is good, when we stand before him and he says, are you innocent or guilty of breaking my laws? You and I will both say that we're guilty of breaking God's laws. And if God is good, he can't let guilty people go free and still be good. But he's loving, so what is he to do? Well, he would allow an innocent person to take the place of someone who is guilty, but who here is innocent? I'm not, you're not. The only person who's ever lived the human experience without becoming guilty of rebelling against God, breaking the commandments or being selfish to his fellow man is, is Jesus. That's why we need Jesus. He's the only one who's innocent. And if Jesus is just a man, then his one sacrifice would cover one other guilty person. But if Jesus is who Isaiah said that he would be, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace, born as a baby, a son who would be given, then how many people's lives is God's life worth? And the answer is all the people. That's how many people Jesus' life would be worth. So both of us, both of us need Jesus. So you are not my enemy. That's what Ephesians 6 says. We're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Our fight is not against people. We don't hate anyone. We love everyone and are for human flourishing in every aspect of life. We believe this because it's what the Bible says God wants for us. We fight against false and harmful ideologies that keep us from everything that God intended for us. So what does the Bible have to say about our identity and sexuality? And for this, we're going all the way back to the first page of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 verse 27 says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. And over the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at the four implications of that passage of Scripture. Just that right there. There's four different biblical truths that we get from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. And today, we're only going to go over the first two. We'll go over the next two next week. But the first truth that we learn from this passage of Scripture that helps us to inform a more accurate understanding of our identity and our sexuality is this. 
mankind is created in God's image. And God said, that was very good. You and I are created in the image of God. There's a pattern. There's an example, and it's God. And we're created in his image. Psalm chapter 139, verse 13 says, you made, this is, this is David writing about the way that God had crafted him. He goes on to say, in my mother's womb, you were intentional about my parts and pieces. But Psalm 139, verse 16, uh, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Verse 14, thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. <laughs> it's almost like he was looking in a mirror when he goes, how well I know it. Wow, God, you made this and it is beautiful. Right? That's, I don't think he was being arrogant or vain as much as he's just considering how complex humanity is. And he says, God, it's just like we are a wonder of creation. And everybody knows this. I'm like, even doctors, right? And like, there's things they can do, but there's so much. I think there's way more about the human body that they can't explain than, than what can be explained. And David just says, like we are like we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 I mentioned this last week but Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that you are you're a masterpiece is what it is. Like you you're a work of art. You're not an accident. And I think we've been spoon-fed for a long time that you and I are just a random collection of mutations and random accidents that lead us to becoming some type of purposeless, random animal. And if you think of yourself in that light, I think we begin to behave in that light. So I think the first thing we need to understand is that we're not random, we're not accidents. We are specifically designed and created by God in His image. We're not accidents. You are created by an all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving God. You are His idea. Our culture says that we get to define who we are, but the Bible would say that God already did that for you. And for those of us who've accepted Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as the only sacrifice that God will accept on our behalf, for Christians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. You and I don't define who we are. I don't even belong to me. For God bought you with a high price, therefore you must honor God with your body. The things that I do with this, like, belongs to someone other than the one who's in it, right? Like this was, this was given to me by God. It belongs to God, and someday he will take it back again. Like I didn't choose to be born, neither did you. I didn't choose my hair color, my eye color, I, my personality, my IQ. All of these things were chosen for us by God who knit us together in the womb. We're fearfully and wonderfully made, and it's a gift. And each one of us are responsible for what we do with it, to do with it what he intends and said is good for it. 
We're creating the image of God. Now, if agency refers to the thoughts and actions taken by people to express their individual power, Christians voluntarily submit their agency, or out of their agency, they choose to submit their thoughts and actions to a God that they trust will bring them, bring us, our greatest happiness and fulfillment. Now, the way that this affected our sexual ethic as a culture started shifting in the 1960s. And that was the birth of the sexual revolution. And that has been described as the single greatest sociological shift in human history. And every metric for human flourishing has tanked ever since. Like you can watch the number of like crime and rape and abuse and murder and it's consistent and it increases as the population increases until God and our responsibility to him begins to become diminished in our culture. And then the first bold move was everything like like indulge in every desire of the heart. And it was supposed to lead to our flourishing, but fatherlessness, like look at the stats. Like once the sexual revolution happened in the 60s and God was de-emphasized in our culture, and I, I'm not I'm not talking about a, a, a nation can't be Christian. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just when God is taken out of just public discourse, de-emphasized, pushed into the background, fatherlessness, crime, drug addiction, alcoholism, abuse, rape, uh, suicide, divorce, everything skyrockets. And we have not become happier. The studies now show that there's a higher percentage of people who struggle with depression and loneliness and even suicidal thoughts now that any other time in our history, at least since it's been measured. So I'm, what I'm saying is that the way that we're doing it now is not helping us. It isn't leading to her human flourishing. The statistics would say that the exact opposite thing is happening. As we become more and more independent from God and indulgent in our behavior, and that's because culture can't define who we are. It shapes us for sure, but it doesn't know who you were created to be. Only God knows that. And you and I are not accidents or the accumulation of just random mutations. We were specifically created by an intelligent being for, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, a specific purpose. And when we find our way back to our Creator and live under His authority, we discover all of the good things that He planned for us long ago and then find contentment and fulfillment in living out the purpose for which we were created. And that is the shortest path to your greatest happiness. That's the first truth. The second truth is this. Mankind was created male 
and female. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God only created two sexes, two genders, male and female. What's happened in our culture is that our culture has begun to separate gender from sex. And what I think the more accurate thing to do would be to separate gender, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Stereotypes. Gender stereotypes from gender. The Bible's position would seem to indicate that sex and gender are the same, even if gender stereotypes change. In the Bible, you'll find men, when they greet each other, they embrace each other with a holy kiss. That's a stereotype. I, and I, I'm, I'm glad that's changed. I don't want any of you, when you see me, to come up to me and greet me with a kiss. Please don't do this. It's going to make me incredible. Like, please don't. Like, I know that that's what men did at one point. And that's, but that, and I'm glad that stereotype has changed. Proverbs chapter 31 says that the godly woman sits at the gate of the city and does business. And there's a time in American history where the stereotype for women should be that they stay in the kitchen. It doesn't change their gender, it changes the stereotype. Let me, let me, it was, what was it? Nah, I forget the name of the article. My friend Josh was talking about this. He said, he had a, he had a, he had a quote from a, a ladies' journal from the early 1900s that said, since pink is a stronger, bolder color, that color is more appropriate for boys. And since blue is softer and delicate, it should be reserved for little girls. Well, that's another stereotype that has completely changed. Culture uh, changed the stereotype of manliness from a kiss to a handshake, and from the city gates being an entrepreneur to kitchen. Um, but that's only, like, that's at the surface level. What do we do with a boy who likes cooking, ballet, and crochet? And a girl who likes wrestling, working on cars, and building things? In the past, we would have said that we hope they grow out of it. Maybe, maybe you're, you're a boy and you never liked sports or, you know, wrestling and, you know, whatever all the other boys in your street were into and you were hoping that you would grow out of all of your interests so that you could fit in better than you never did. Or maybe the same thing happened for you as a little girl. I don't know. Culture would now say, though, that you are non-conforming. And I would ask, to what? And the answer to that is to stereotypes. That's all you're non-conforming to is to stereotypes. And we're okay with that because stereotypes have always Change, but that didn't mean that who you are as a person changes. So the question is, does that mean that they are no longer male or female or that their sex and their gender have parted ways? And I think the helpful thing to do at this point would be to define our terms. So there's four terms we're going to define. Uh, the first is sex. So when we say sex, what we mean is male or female, typically with reference to chromosomes, internal reproductive anatomy, and external genitals. Gender identity would be a person's self-perception 
of whether they are male or female, masculine or feminine. Gender dysphoria, then, would be the sense of a mismatch between your physical sex, your body, and your psychological gender identity, your mind. So when we talk about gender dysphoria, we're talking about the gap between the way that I feel or think on the inside versus the way that I look or behave on the outside. And then the fourth definition would be transgender, which is an umbrella term for many experiences of identity that do not align normatively with a person's biological sex. And I think the irreconcilable difference between the world, the world's view of personhood and the word's view of personhood has to do with this understanding of what makes you, you. So the world would see that your person has moral and legal standing and resides in your mind, but that your body is completely separate from who you are and is simply an expand, expendable biological organism. So you'd say, listen, on the outside, it all just kind of randomly evolved anyway. It just like, but who you are has nothing to do with your physical makeup. Who you are is in your mind. But what's on the outside can be anything, is the idea. And this is, the, this is also part of the reason for abortion, because they would see that that baby inside the mother is not a person. It's just a clump of cells. It's just a body but has not established personhood yet because personhood is here. It's not, it's not here. And what the Bible has to say is that you are a whole person created from conception in the image of God, body, and soul. And the Bible teaches that who you are is deeply connected to what you are. So what do you do with the fact that there is a war in your mind between the way that you think or feel and what it is that you see in the mirror? Like, does this mean you're crazy? That how I feel about myself and what I, and then what I actually do or look like or how I'm built is completely different. Who, who thinks like this? And the answer, actually, is that Christians think like that. We recognize that there is often a difference between what's going on in here and what's happening out here. The Apostle Paul says uh, in Romans chapter 7, verse 22, he says, I love God's law with all of my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. And this power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. He goes on to say that there are things that I, I want to do up here. Like I, in my mind, I want to go in, in, in my, with my mind, I want to go in this direction. But with my body, I'm constantly going in this direction is what he says. And then he describes this condition of having a mind that wants to go this way and a body that wants to go this way as being miserable. And maybe that would be an accurate description of what you're experiencing. And Paul said that that 
is definitely understandable. But he goes on to say in verse 24, which is the next verse, he says, Oh, what a miserable person I am who can free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death. Right? With a body that runs this way and a mind that wants to go this way. And he says, thank God the answer is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. So you see, how does in my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. So for the Christian, there is constant dissonance between the sin that damages us and the goodness that we crave, that we know leads to flourishing. And every one of us have a sinful nature that leads to death. But when God moves in, he gives us his Holy Spirit, who then works on the inside to conform us into the image of Jesus, which leads to life, contentment, and fulfillment. So when the mind and body are out of sync, the world would say, well, listen to your mind and change your body. Surgery, hormone therapy, or whatever. But the word says that when your mind and body are out of alignment, then you need to change your mind. And it's not just Christians that say this. If, and I'm using another person's analogy, if, if you had anorexia and you went in to a counselor for this, and you, you know, they saw that you physically were wasting away, and you said, in my mind, I feel fat. The doctor would not go, well, it's in your mind that you actually are, so let me give you diet pills, let's do the stomach staple or the, right? He wouldn't do that. What any good counselor would do is they would say, no, we need to work on your mind so that it matches your reality or you're going to die, right? Like that would, that's what a good counselor would do. And the scripture says in Romans chapter 12, verse one and two, it says this, and so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. So in light of the fact that God showed up in the human story, lived it in a way that you and I were never capable of living, and dying the death that you and I were intended to die, in light of what he's done for you, what he says is, make the conscious choice to give your bodies to God because of all that he's done for you. And in giving the way that you live out your body to God, you now are offering them, he says, as a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he finds acceptable. And that, listen to this, that truly is the way to worship him, it says. Like the truest, purest act of worship is you, you and I, regardless of the sin that we crave, choose to give our bodies to our loving creator. And the only reason why you would do this is because you love him, trust him, and are grateful for what he's already done for you. Verse two says, don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person. And how does God transform us into a new person? By changing, not the way that he made us, but by changing the way that we think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Uh, my oldest son and I, where we helped, uh, he and his wife moved out here from Colorado. She got accepted into BU. They're here for just two years and then they moved back. And in the way out, he, he showed me a podcast uh, from a gay Christian pastor 
who has completely submitted to the will of God and the word of God. And the way he explained the way that he's living his life is through the lens of Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. And he says, as a Christian who is gay, that's how he, that's how he refers to himself, when I choose to live under the authority of God, I'm making the same choice that Jesus made, who was not married and was sexually abstinent. This, 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 like, this is the gist of his words. And he said, and so when I submit myself to the authority of God and live in line with his word, I am patterning my life after Jesus and submitting my body to the Father as a holy and living sacrifice. And God sees the way that I'm choosing to live in spite of my cravings as an act of worship. Well, I, as a heterosexual man, get to make the exact same choice because I have had cravings to live outside of my covenant of marriage also. And any one of us can look at any area of our life that is not in line with the word of God and make the exact same choice in light of all that God has done for you. Give your bodies to God as a holy and living sacrifice and ask God to begin changing you from the inside out, transforming, according to the scriptures, the way that we think. Which leads me to another question. What about those who've already started to change who they are physically? What about those who've already had puberty blockers, hormone therapy, gender reassignment surgery, or some other type of modification that way? Can God love them or love you? Is there room for them in the kingdom of God? And I have a beautiful story for you from the Bible in Acts chapter, 7, Acts chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, again, go to Acts chapter 8, verse 27. But let me give you some pretext. There's a, there's a eunuch, and uh, he's from Ethiopia, and he goes to Jerusalem, and he's on his way back. And God knows what has happened to this eunuch. And we don't know why the eunuch goes to Jerusalem. Like, was he, is he ethnically Jewish, but was sold into slavery and ended up in, in uh, Ethiopia? And now he's just got questions? Had he become a eunuch voluntarily and regretted it or struggling with it? Or is he just spiritually curious and he heard about the God of the Jews? And so he goes, we, 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 don't, we don't know, but he goes to Jerusalem. And as a eunuch, when he walked up to the temple, historians tell us that outside the temple there would have been a sign consistent with the Torah that would have said that there are to be no sick, lame, unclean, or eunuchs allowed in the temple. Which meant that he would have made that huge trip and gotten all the way there and then found out that you can't be here. And so he turns around 
and he's on his way back. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit comes to one of the apostles. His name is Philip. It says, I want you to go out into the desert. And where he meets him is like 60 miles away from where he is. So he had to walk. The Holy Spirit was so interested in the eunuch that he makes Philip walk 60 miles out into the middle of the desert all by himself, not to preach to hundreds of people, but to one person. And here's what it says in verse 37, 27. So he, Philip, started out. And he met the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the Candake, the queen of Ethiopia. And the eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he was now returning. He's seated in his carriage, and he's reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now, the reason why eunuchs were not allowed to go into the temple is because they had been physically damaged in their male genitals. So to be a eunuch, you either had your genitals crushed, cut, or pierced. Physically altered in some way so that you could no longer reproduce. Then in, the, in Acts chapter 8, it tells us the verses that he begins to read. And what I, what I love is that the Bible says, then starting from this passage of Scripture... Philip begins to share with him the good news of what Jesus had done. And here's the cool thing. To become a eunuch, he had to be cut, crushed, or pierced. And the passage of Scripture that God leads him to is where Jesus is cut, crushed, and pierced for the sins of mankind. Like, I wonder if that's what a try, like him trying to figure out what that part of Isaiah meant for him considering exactly who he was. And God knew exactly who he was. God knows way more about the story than we do, but he gives us that much. And so the one that wasn't formally fit, at least in everybody else's eyes, for the temple and the presence of God, God himself went way out of his way to make sure that that guy knew that there was even room for him. And just three chapters later in the book of Isaiah, Philip would have gotten him to the place where it says in Isaiah chapter 56, verse 4 through 5. For this is what the Lord says, I will bless those eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, keep my Sabbath days holy, and who choose to do what pleases and commit their lives to me. There's room for you too. If you choose to do what pleases God and commit to following him, if you give him your mind and body, if we submit ourselves to God, keep reading. Verse five, to those eunuchs, to those who have been somehow physically, surgically, in our day, chemically altered, I will give them when they come to me. Within the walls of my house, a memorial and a name far greater than sons and daughters would ever give them. For the name that I will give them is an everlasting one, and it will never disappear. No one is beyond God's love or God's grace. Even if you have surgically transitioned, 
God has room for you. He makes room for anyone who will repent of sin, all sin, all of the ways that our lives do not line up with his word, and place their faith in Jesus, the only one who qualifies to take the place of those of us who are guilty, and then give him our mind and body. God, all that I am, I'm giving to you. So if you struggle with the sense that who you are in the inside doesn't match who you are on the outside, you are going to have to choose whether or not you believe God knows what he's doing, whether or not you believe that God was involved in your creation, in your mother's womb, and whether or not you believe that God can be trusted to know what's best for you. If you want to, but genuinely you don't, then I think you can tell God that. Like, I, God, right now I still have too many questions. Like, I don't know if I can trust you, but I'm asking you to help me trust you, which was the next thing I was going to ask you to do. If you need help trusting God, I think you can ask him, God, help me to trust you in this area of my life where I have so much confusion and frustration. Make that your prayer. Offer your mind and your body as a living sacrifice, as an act of worship to a God that you love with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you personally struggle with loving people that you do not understand, if you're angry at the way things are being spoken about, you need to remember that your fight is not against people. But there actively is an enemy of all of mankind who's trying to confuse and hurt all of us in all kinds of ways, not just sexually. Gay and straight and everything in between. Like, your fight isn't against people, man. You've never looked at somebody who wasn't created in the image of God. C.S. Lewis said this, you've never locked eyes with somebody that God doesn't love. Like, supremely, enough to die for. Everybody you've ever met was creating the image of God and is intended by God to find their way back to Him. And if you, who claim to be a person of faith, are the one person that doesn't make them feel loved, you, you are not an accurate reflection of the way of Jesus in their life. And that needs to change. If you have a loved one struggling with their sexuality or identity, keep loving them as they are. Speak truth over them, that they are not an accident, that they are wonderfully made in the image of God. Let them know that God brings wholeness, contentment, meaning, and purpose, even when we seem to be lost or alone. And keep praying for them, but always treat them with gentleness and respect. And all of us should make sure that the way that we live our lives is in sync with the Word of God in every area of our life, trusting that God's Spirit leads to life, love, and contentment if we present our bodies to God as a living and holy sacrifice. That would be the worship He would want from all of us. So let's pray. God, I love you with all of my heart, and I ask your blessings on every person who's a part of this service, regardless of our experiences, the things that we've done or have been done to us, or with us, or whatever. 
God, there's not a single one of us who are in an accident. We're not the collection of random mutations who are just disembodied, I don't, I don't know, electrons. Like we were created in your image. Like you call us like wonderfully made. You call us your masterpieces. And God, sometimes we don't feel it, but we're not the ones who determine what we are because we're not the ones who invented us. You solely have the authority to say who and what we should be, and you made it clear. God, there's a ton of ways in which we, regardless of our sexual persuasion, we sin against you and against others, and I'm asking for your forgiveness. For those, God, who are personally struggling with the way that their faith in you affects the way that they express the way they feel. I ask for your Holy Spirit to do a miracle in their heart. That's what I'm asking you to do. Help all of us, God, to love you more than we love ourselves, to fully surrender every area of our lives to you, trusting that that is the shortest path towards one, a relationship with you, of course, but also that ends with contentment, peace, and our own happiness. God, let your will be done in us and let your will always done, be done through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.